Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue in America. I'm Suzanne Lasser. I'm Yarina Sancion, and this is Bilingual in America. Hi, I'm Yarina Sancion. There have been reports throughout the country about Asian American attacks since the COVID-19 pandemic began. But the number of incidents began to rise sharply after the coronavirus was called the Chinese virus. Today, we speak to guests who are living through this experience. They share their bilingual stories, their viewpoint, and how the rising tide lifts the whole boat up for all of us. Jeff Tsang is a second generation Asian American. His first language is Cantonese, which he learned while living and being raised with both his maternal and paternal grandparents. Today, he and his wife are raising two sons in North Carolina. He talks with Suzanne Lasser, our segment producer, about some of the ways he passes on his Chinese heritage to his children, and also voices frustrations and ideas on how marginalized communities can work for change that will benefit us all. Let's listen in. Jeff, I want to thank you and welcome you to Bilingual in America. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you today about a really necessary conversation regarding the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. I want to start off by asking you, you know, historically, the Asian American Pacific Island communities have stayed out of the spotlight and maintained aspects of their native heritage while living and thriving in the United States similar to many other immigrant communities in the U.S. What are some traditions that you, now as a parent, uh, have been sharing with your children? As a second generation uh, Asian American, you know, there's, there's a lot that, that I try to pass on to keep, I guess, the culture alive within, within my family. Now, my, my kids are half Asian, half Irish, uh, so I, I really do try to impress upon them that they have two distinct cultures that, that they should really understand and, and, and preserve as part of you know, their family history. But on the Asian side, you know, we celebrate things like Chinese New Year. Uh, when they were you know, first born, there's, there's a cultural tradition where you, know, you have a, they're really not supposed to see anybody or, or leave the house for an entire lunar month. And at the end of that month, there's a big celebration with family, you know, stuff like that. I try to celebrate and kind of impress upon them. There's a lot of things that I can't, you know, kind of pass on. And one of those is, is language. Since I'm second generation, I don't have a full grasp of, uh, of Cantonese. Even though when I was born, it was, it was the first language that I actually learned. Uh, I lived in, in a household with actually both sets of grandparents. But once my parents separated, you know, I, I yeah, I went to. I started going to an American school, and English became my primary language. And it was really the only language that was was spoken in my house because my mom, she was uh, born in America. You know, Chinese language wasn't her primary language either. So it's one one of the things that we've kind of lost. Um, I wish that I still had that so I could give 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 that to them. I think it's 
a beautiful language in my in my opinion what a great asset it would be for them to be able to have that so maybe one day you know if if they have the opportunity if they could take chinese you know as a course you know i'll really push them to to do that if possible as we've seen this past year has been a difficult one in terms of the pandemic in terms of the black lives matters movement and most recently we've been seeing an uptick in anti-asian sentiment whether we're thinking about the deadly shootings in Georgia or the casual use of china virus by our previous administration and i'm wondering if you feel that you know with this anti-racist movement right now with this focus on anti-blackness do you feel that this is also an opportunity and a moment of change for the asian american pacific islander communities as well it definitely is i th- i think the asian american community for a, a very long time has been kind of overlooked and i think we've also kept quiet uh, when when it comes to civil rights and just about the injustices that that happened in this country i think it's partly you know because for a long time we were just more comfortable just thinking that that if we weren't seen weren't heard everything would be okay for us and that's just that's just not true uh, as we see now you know prejudice and, and injustices happen to us regardless whether or not we're saying anything or or for that matter doing anything right i mean uh this whole entire pandemic i've i've never been to china but people look at me and think that i'm responsible for this virus you know i have nothing to do with the chinese government i'm just as american as anybody else right yes. in this country but uh a few years ago you know i was walking down the street in charlotte and you know somebody bumped me and called me a chinese motherfucker and these things are happening with with more and more frequency and we have to understand that you know for too long in this country the civil rights movement has been led by African Americans in this country, right? And we need to be allies. We need to support Black Lives Matter. We need to make sure that we speak up on their behalf because whatever gains that happen in this country, they're always made by African Americans and we need to help push that forward. I think it's happening. I think in the past few years, we've seen stronger leadership in the Asian American community. representation counts right uh, not just in in politics but in media you know just uh, being able to see folks in entertainment people who are being successful as agents and speaking up I, i think that's we're seeing more and more of that where before you know it's just yeah you, know, you just couldn't see it i i think this country has just a, a deep history of emasculating asian men you know and sexualizing uh, asian females right and i think we're we're starting to see a trend away from that where you know this past year we've got an asian american man who's who's nominated for uh, an an oscar what is the first time it's ever happened right how long has it taken you know how how why did it take so long for 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 that to happen so i i think you know there's a lot of things that are happening that are positive but we need to be uh, more vocal i think we need stronger leadership in the asian american community and we need to be allies of all folks who you know who are in the country who are marginalized so I'm a strong believer of that yes i think jeff that in this country we see these trends of uh, xenophobia and racism right and they have ebbs and flows however there's a consistent presence in, in this country and what you're talking about is allyship and really moving the needle in the terms of benefits for all right because 
the structures that were designed were not designed for anybody except white males. Right. And um, we need to start looking at each other instead of categories in terms of humanity. But first, there has to be an understanding. There has to be an acceptance. And at some level, there is going to be discomfort. And there's nothing wrong with discomfort. The more important thing is that the conversation happens. Otherwise, things begin to fester and will continue to perpetuate the same patterns that, that we've already been living. And so I'm just wondering about your experience growing up and how your family prepared you. And I'm wondering about how you and Maureen uh, are preparing your boys. Growing up, like I said, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, which was in, in Flatbush, which was a very diverse community. Uh, it basically, you know, every type of ethnic diversity living you know, in, in a 10 block radius of Flatbush. When we moved to Staten Island, it was a little bit of a culture shock. Uh, so I went from a, a elementary school that had probably a couple hundred kids in, in, in my grade alone to uh, a small little suburban school that had a couple hundred kids in total. It wasn't a, a diverse community at all. I love who I am. I love my history. You know, my family history, history is rich. You know, and that, that's one of the things that I, I really try to tell my kids and pass, pass on to them is that, that history, but also that love of who you are. You know, like I said, my, my kids are uh, Asian, half Asian, half Irish. I want them to embrace both cultures equally and love it. Uh, but when the world looks at them and looks at their last name, they are distinctly Asian, right? I mean, they, they, they look Asian. They have the last name is Asian. Uh, so the world at first glance is going to judge them that way. And that's just the way it is. You know, that, that's, that, that's, that's, this is the world that we live in. This is how you have to prepare, be prepared for it. And it's sad, you know, that, that I have to have those conversations with them. I don't want to. I don't want to tell them that, that at times life is going to be unfair to them, that at times they may not feel safe. At times they might feel like they're not wanted uh, because of the way they look. But I, I, at the same time, I feel it would be a disservice if I didn't prepare for them for it. Now, after high school, you know, I went to college. You know, that's where I met used to. <laughs> and, and college was a totally different experience for me. You know, um, it's, it's, you know, it's 20,000 kids all trying to find a place where they belong. And, um, you know, me going to college, I was, I was open right back up to all those diverse communities, you know, and then trying to find a place where, you know, where, where, where I fit and felt comfortable. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I made a decision to pledge a, a black fraternity. Um, it's where I felt more comfortable, most comfortable. And, you know, that really taught me a lot as well. That, that taught me a lot about some of the things that I didn't know about black community they have to deal with. I mean, yeah, I, I grew up as an Asian person in Staten Island, that, that was uncomfortable, but the, the black community across the globe, you know, the, the things that they have to deal with, it's just, uh, you know, exponential in comparison. And so that, that just really gave me just a deeper understanding of just like how really we're all in the same boat, right? And a, a rising tide lifts, lifts everybody. I guess when it comes down to it, I want my kids to not have to have gone through what I did, but to understand what I went through and not be blind to the possibility that could happen to them. And that's, that's really the bottom line. I love what you said about the, the rising tide lifting everybody and hopefully uh, our children 
right? This generation will fare better and, and live better and experience things in a way that each group who has been, whether it's anti, anti-Black, whether it is anti-Asian, whether it's anti-Semitic, whatever it might be, that we look at each other as humans and unite with that understanding. I always like to really think about changes and hopes. And I'm just wondering, you know, you talked about your, you know, your fraternity. And as an alumni member of Cap uh, Alpha Psi, I'm wondering if you see a role with the active younger members in helping to move that needle, right? So that, as you said so eloquently, you know, the rising tide lifts everybody to make the work that much lighter. Any thoughts about what you would like to see or, or how you can help participate in, in shifting that needle? Within my fraternity, you know, I think um, just me being a part of it and, and interacting with, with my brothers and sharing my unique experiences has helped them, I, I guess, see the, the Asian experience in America. But I, I think it also just shows them that, hey, you know, the Asian community is, is, is also here to, to support them. You know, those, those artificial walls that have been put in place for us to, to fight against each other so that, that we can, you know, kind of unite, you know, create uh, a coalition, right? I think that's really what's more, more needed today than anything else is a, a, a strong coalition between all these different groups who are asking for justice and equality. We need to, ha- we need to have that uh, to, to show that, that, that you know, we're, we, we have power, you know, we have influence and we're not going to be picked apart. We're going to stick together and you come after one community, you come after all of us. But, you know, going back to your question, I think that's something that, that I can share, right? And show that, you know, it's that I'm here. I'm here to support and I'm here to do what needs to be done, do the work. And it's not from, you know, it's not for my benefit, it's for all our benefits. You know, you also touched, Jeff, upon just listening and having your eyes opened when you were pledging right? And that's part of this, is a willingness of people to listen without fear and and truly understand. And wow, your idea of a coalition from from your lips to our listeners' ears, may, may that be how we move forward as a country. Because as you said, when you take away the divisiveness only within large numbers, whether it's as a voting block or in terms of social justice, community, you know, local grassroots work, um, can we bring forth a change? I, I thank you for that. I, I so appreciate you coming on and talking with me and sharing with our listeners about what it's like to, you know, be second generation, uh, Asian American, married to, you know, an Irish American woman, raising two young boys when you're both from the Northeast and now have moved a, a little further South. And by coming on today, you're, you are speaking your beauty. So thank you. Well, thank you. Catherine Cruz Levine is first generation Filipina American and was raised in Staten Island, New York. As the eldest of three children, and raising her own two children in a Jewish home, Catherine shares with us her perspective for preserving culture and traditions and how as the eldest sibling, she has been the gatekeeper of traditions. Let's listen in as she speaks with segment producer, 
Suzanne Lasser. I'm talking with Catherine Cruz Levine about her bilingual and bicultural journey. And a small disclaimer, Kathy is my sorority sister. Kathy, I wanna welcome you and thank you for speaking with me today and sharing a little bit with our uh, bilingual in America community uh, about your experience. I know that you are a first-generation Filipino-American, and so I'm just wondering about some of the traditions that you've now shared with your children. You know, some of the most important things with growing up Filipino is family, and always like having these family gatherings which involve food and conversations and stories. And I think that's how we always were able to pass down the stories and traditions of how my parents grew up, how our ancestors grew up and kind of sharing um, the history behind it is helping my children to really kind of learn more about their, um, their cousins their relatives who most of them are in the Philippines. The cousins and relatives that live here in the United States you start to become very Americanized, but again, the food, the gatherings, coming together, looking at pictures and photo albums, like old pictures of, you know, our parents graduating from college or high school. Um, right. Dad working, you know, in the fields, like things like that. You know, it's not something like living here in urban or suburban, you know, society in America. So they like to hear stories. My, my parents, when they come and visit are constantly reminiscing about their history and uh, their childhood. I think more so now because they're getting older. Mm-hmm. So, that makes yeah. sense. Kathy, when you were growing up, I'm sure your parents spoke Tagalog to each other, but did you and your siblings learn Tagalog? So I did because when I, so my my siblings and I, my sister's three years younger and then my, he's nine years younger than me, I'm the eldest. So when I was growing up, my grandfather actually lives here for a little bit and he brought me to school. It was like during my ages of like seven, eight and nine, he would take me to school in the morning and he obviously only spoke Tagalog. So he would speak to me in Tagalog and I would answer him in English. And that's how we both were able to kind of learn the language together. And ever since then, like I, I know the language very well. I wouldn't say that I could carry a conversation on, but I understand hundred percent. My parents can speak to me and we definitely can communicate. Unfortunately, my sister and my, you know, don't know it that well. They only know a few words, uh, which is for me, I feel like I wish that my parents did push a little bit more to continue to carry that conversation and help us learn the language. But for them, again, I think in the beginning, it was difficult because they really also wanted to learn English and help us with learning English and growing up here in America. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Um, We hear that a lot, especially like the eldest child is the one who is the gatekeeper, right? For more of the traditions, the language from the heritage country and with the younger siblings, right? We see less and less of that, you know, so what you're sharing is not atypical. And, you know, my own home, right? My, we only spoke English, but both my mother and father were spoken to in Yiddish and English. And so, now as a mom, like there are some words that I use with my son that my mother and father used with me, but unlike you, like there's no way I could ever have a conversation or even understand if they said anything more to me than like, you know, the the few little words that I know. So it's interesting, right? How when coming here, certain things just end up getting lost. And as you said, because they wanted, your parents wanted you to be able to be successful here. They wanted you and your siblings to thrive. And so 
they focused on on other things. The Philippine community, at least in Staten Island, you know, the girls across the street from me, there were four of them and they were Filipinas. And there was this group called Paxi and it was like this organization for Philippine Americans and to keep the, the culture alive. And so when you talked about like the foods and stuff, it made me think about like when they would make like limpiat and bonset and uh, yeah. And everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Food is always one of those things that we connect with, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, growing up, it's interesting. So my, again, my parents, they, I think more my dad, my mom really wanted to be involved with the Filipino community, but my dad, because he was working in the city and he really wanted to learn more about the American culture and the language and, and part of him come coming to America was to get away from the Philippines, to have opportunity here and to make it out here and and really like him coming by himself was like to make it out here on his own. So he like kind of held back with us getting super involved in those um, Filipino communities or the Paxi groups. We did have a group, we were involved in church more. So we had like a singing group. So every Sunday we would come together in church, have the service. And then afterwards we would practice as a group singing because we would be like the chorus group for the church. It's always interesting to hear our guests share aspects of ways that their family held on to what they deemed as culturally important or significant. On Bilingual in America, we speak to a lot of different people. When some come to the United States, they long to hold on to that part of their heritage that connects them the most, while others really long to embrace all that is new about being an American. And now I really wanna shift gears to the present day and talk about some recent events that are impacting our Asian American Pacific Islander communities. I think with the recent the news and what we hear and what we see, I have to be honest, like I've been I've been very hesitant to kind of go out and like to go into the city even, you know, just because I'm afraid of like what I'm gonna experience. Like in the city that I grew up in, you know, I always used to go to New York and I, I would never have any fear of like walking around, you know, it's the melting pot and um, the place where everybody is accepted, right? But I definitely have some hesitation exposing myself out there, really, to say the least, because I don't know what's going to happen just recently, right? That Filipino woman that was kicked and, you know, in front of this building. And that, like, when I heard that, I can't even watch it to see the video and then to think that could have been, like, my parents or my grandparents, you know. And my sister goes to work every day in the city. And I, every day I'm like, please be careful. Like she's, she's been working. She never stopped working since we had COVID and you know, she's a tough cookie, but like, you never know what's gonna happen. Right now, I'm sad to say that on the news, it's a daily occurrence to hear or see something with regard to anti-Asian sentiment. From your personal lens, how does this impact you overall as an individual? Where I live now, it's a different type of community. We pick this area primarily because there are there's a really good mix vision okay. uh, of like of but primarily like the mixed marriages, mixed ethnicities, religions, and cultures. But a big I would say fifty to sixty percent of Asian Pacific Islanders, Korean, Chinese, um, Indian, and then there's like okay. Israeli. So it's like a, a big mix. So I would say we're very insulated. We we don't experience it as much, but it it definitely like I I'm sure my kids do. Like the, you'll still hear it in schools and things like that. 
It's so hard to hear you say like, you know, that, that you're fearful, right? Because there was a, a study done recently and it talked about how 26% of the AAPI community shared, right? This fear of attack or being harmed, you know, bodily harm. And we have a lot of work to do as a country. And during the pandemic, things have been heightened, especially with the previous administration and the idea that it's the, the China virus, but also just in terms of humanity and, and looking beyond skin, because whether it's, you know, the Black Lives Matter or any other social justice movement that's taking place, right? We, we need allies. We need to have necessary conversations, not always easy, but necessary conversations so that everyone can feel safe when they're going out. And there are a number of groups now that are sharing what can be done. How can you, you know, instead of being a bystander, right? Mm -hmm. Standing up for someone without necessarily putting yourself in harm's way because not everyone has the same level of comfort to, to be vocal when they yeah. see something happening. And it's interesting you talk about your children. As an educator, I'm a firm believer that we have a responsibility starting at the elementary schools in educating our children about this anti-racist or uh, xenophobic, removing that from our worlds. And if we start when children are young, the same way we plant seeds about children will go to college or not cursing, right? <laughs> if we start with serious education, um, exposure to other cultures and how to be an ally, I do think it can go a long way so that children will have allies in their peers, um, not just in the adults who are around. So I'm just wondering about any thoughts that you have on ways that we can promote acceptance. You know, I think about, you know, the fact that your children are being raised Jewish and you married, um, you know, a Jewish man. And so I understand, right, because my husband is black and Abraham's being raised Jewish. And so there's these two sides or even in talking with Jeff and how, you know, his wife is Irish American and he's Chinese American. So there are these conversations that happen as a result of, of our love, right? And the people we fell in love with and the families we started. So I'm just curious to hear a little bit about what your thoughts are. No, it's, it's definitely challenging. I think, again, I, it's religion for me, which is, was big. It was like a big decision to make. So it has been challenging to say the least. I think my kids are at the age now, 12 and 13, where they really are aware of like so many things. And there's a lot of information out there that is available to them. And it's really, again, as parents getting around it and making sure that we're helping them to understand and digest the information that's there. Speaking with Jeff, he had talked about how it's really to the benefit of many when we are divided, right? Because if we're united, then unity in numbers and strength and how important it is to remove those walls that have been built and examine why those walls have been built, right? And what purpose are they serving and, and how to move beyond that. And so I think that's, that's one thing that I'm hopeful for, right? That, that we can move forward and we can learn to, to listen and to recognize. I mean, I recognize I have white privilege in a way that my husband doesn't, in a way that, you know, you probably don't. 
and I have a responsibility to to be an ally, to to be outspoken, to share what I can. You said it so well. You said help your children digest all of the information that they're getting because all of the information may not be good information. And I don't know if you sit down for dinner every day, but like sometimes you don't have that time because you're busy, right? And it's just like, we need to take the time to listen to our kids because they have so many important things to say. They're learning so many things that, again, they're too young sometimes to really understand what to do with that information. And we're, we're there to help them to make those decisions. And I think as a society, if we do more of that, talking and really listening, right? Hearing what is being said and, and then processing it out and through, maybe the this generation will be the ones that will experience life the, the way we would like it to be for us, but it isn't at this point. I read about this uh, system in LA, this 211 reporting for AAPI community to report what's happening because typically they have, as you mentioned, shied away and not wanted to have a spotlight or the idea about physicians checking in with patients to see if they have experienced racism because that's really um, often a trauma. Uh, you know, whether it was the Filipina who was attacked, you know, in New York City or, you know, as horrific as what we saw in the deadly shootings in Georgia. But we know that instances of racism um, can lead to trauma and trauma over time does lead to depression, anxiety, drug abuse, a variety of health issues. So I'm just wondering if there's anything that um, you hope for in terms of uplifting the community as we move forward. I mean, I think you said it, it's important. You know, education is always key. Talking to one another, being really asking a person like I, I did. I just recently did all my like doctor's visits because now we like can. And one of the doctors asked me about feeling any anxiety, feeling any like what I said to you, I feel like I need to like isolate myself because I'm afraid to go out outside of my little area here because of what I fear. And they asked me about that and they, and they were really serious about their questions. It wasn't just like checking a, a box off to say, okay, we asked her to see if she has anxiety or if she, as an Asian American, if she's experiencing any fear. They, like they really talked to me and, I, and maybe it was like a woman to woman thing too, but she really was generally concerned about like my well being and making sure that I took care of myself and kind of lean on the people that support you. you you need that and also like when I grew up it was always kind of like stand in the shadows you, you know you don't want to like stand up for anyone you don't want to like kind of get into the mix of things at least that's how my parents always taught us like take care of your own business don't bother with anyone else's keep your heads down okay and I don't want to do that anymore you know I, I think that there's too many of us that do that and look at what's happening and I think that if more of us start to wake up and you know, get involved, you know, it doesn't have to be a big step, but at least just pay attention to what's going on. You know, maybe we can do something and change a little bit of what's happening. Absolutely. I thank you for, you know, coming on and speaking with us. Look forward to being able to get back together and hear about hopefully this administration making it one of the important footprints that they will leave behind after the next four years so that this is long-term work, right? This is not something that's going to happen overnight and we need to do the, the heavy lifting starting now. So thank you for your contributions. And the last question I'll ask you, Kathy, is how do you speak your beauty? How do I speak my beauty? I mean, I think just being kind to people, 
and being generous and listening. It's always like listening to the other person and genuinely hearing, hearing the other person and then only do things that you feel come from your heart. Like I don't do anything that I don't want to do. I do it because I have a purpose to do it. I want to do it. I want to help somebody. I love that. So Catherine Cruz Levine, <laughs> thank you for joining us. I, I really like what you said about how listening can be a way that you speak your beauty. So thank you for sharing with us. The acts of violence over the past months have rightly shocked the nation's conscience. But by mobilizing social and political forces to embrace diversity, protect the vulnerable, and promote respect, we can roll back this tide of violence and build a safer, more unified country. It is important that civic leaders encourage the perspective of taking and giving, especially in our storytelling. Research shows that this act alone creates connection, compassion, and community. Let's tell and listen to the stories that tie us together in humanity. As Kathy shared in her interview, this is how we can speak our beauty. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm, Bilingual in America, and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback, and we appreciate your support. Follow us, like us, share us.